0: Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP, all sports radio. My name's Peter Solomon. As we ease on into what's going to be a chilly WIP Sunday, it's going to go up to maybe 39, 40 degrees. It's going to be chilly, so take 94 WIP with you, always for a hot conversation. And when we come back in just a bit, something for the class of 2019, whether it's high school, college, the student, or the parent, they need to hear this one. The author of the new book, The Financial Rules for New College Graduates, coming up next here on 94 WIP, WIP Time, 701. And we're back. Finances for new college graduates, their families, probably something for high school graduates to learn as well. As we welcome Michael Taylor, his new book, that new book being The Financial Rules for New College Graduates. Thank you, Michael Taylor. Good morning. Peter, good morning. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Why is it so complicated? I mean, I'm college, first job, money coming in, a credit card, a checking account, maybe hot dog. I'm going shopping. <laughs> this
1: is this is a very hard moment in life when you have that first job and you have money coming in. And look, most of us muddle through, and it's okay. Um, but I'm I'm now 46, and I find my peers say wow, I'm starting to figure it out. But if I had known what I know now when I was 26 or 24, it would be so much easier to, you know, accomplish your financial goals. So, yeah, I think people need, unless you're very fortunate and have parents who taught you um, some key things, you you need a bunch of easy rules. That's, That's the point of the book.
0: Well, you certainly know about money going from Goldman Sachs to writing this book. How'd you make that jump?
1: well i'll tell you the 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 short comedian story is i in the crisis of two thousand and eight I was running a fund I left Goldman Sachs and I was running a what we would call a distressed debt fund and that fund did not survive the crisis um, it was mortally wounded, and it took me a couple of years to shut it down but uh, you know long story there uh, I began to write in two thousand and twelve because of a couple of reasons, but the first was I was angry that I felt that we, we figured out in 2008 that nobody understands finance enough. The bankers don't understand it. The regulators don't understand it. The political leaders don't understand it. People just trying to make their mortgage don't understand it. We don't teach it. And if you were to simply absorb financial media, I think there's a lot of wrong lessons you'd get. And I thought to myself, well, I know how Wall Street works, and I know how I was then working in what I would call instead of high finance, low finance. Um, and I, it turns out I'm, I'm pretty good at explaining things, so I figured – I realized that's my mission, uh, take finance, which seems complicated to most people, and make it understandable. Um, but, but, yeah, my Goldman Sachs background um, is, is interesting, and, and it certainly informs what I do, but uh, this has been very mission-oriented work to, to try to teach what I think is should be understandable to everybody, but is often not uh, explained in a very clear, concise way.
0: Well. I can go back in my mental time machine a while <laughs> back to those days and yeah. they didn't teach us anything about finance in high school. Yeah. My parents basically dealt with the family finances behind a closed door. Yeah. Because um, it was none of our business in their opinion and nothing in college as well. You know, yep. Yeah. Got that job. Uh, I'm going to spend my money. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, because when you think about the future, the future seems a long way off. I mean, when you're in your early twenties, you think retirement is like a thousand miles away, and you got yep. plenty of time. But you yep. don't, do you? No.
1: <laughs> so, so you're you're describing what is a hundred percent, absolutely typical. I would say that um, part of my mission uh, is waking up in the morning angry because they don't teach any useful finance in junior high, nor in high school, nor in college, and most people don't get it. Um, I'm going to make up a statistics, but I think it, it's based on my anecdotal experience. 90 to 95% of people feel like their parents didn't teach them what they needed to know, frankly, because parents don't really know. There's a few, fortunate few, maybe 10% of people have sophisticated parents who say, here's how it's all going to work, and, and we're going to talk to you about money. But, but you're you're describing also very typical money as often a taboo that parents don't talk about. They don't understand it, but or, or they have a lot of hang-ups. Frankly, people have hang-ups about money. Um, so, yeah, you you, you graduate into – you're spit out into the world, whether it's age 18 or 22 or, or whenever, and, boy, there's a lot of decisions, and those simple things that you uh, – simple choices that you make have huge consequences down the line, which are not obvious when you're 18 or 22. It only usually become obvious in retrospect, like I said, you know, in my age, people in my 40s, but certainly uh, folks in their 50s and 60s also go, wow, you know, that was – a that was something I didn't really get for decades, and now I'm starting to get it. <laughs> so I'm trying to cut through, cut, save people a few decades, you know.
0: Okay. How do you begin? Yeah. I mean, clearly we should buy this book for every new college graduate then.
1: Uh, uh, well, well, yes, of course. Look, um, my philosophy is that I can teach the principles and make them very, very simple. In most chapters, um, there's only one or two big things you need to know. You know, we could know a thousand things about finance, but there's only one or two things on any given topic. Now, I will say that it's not necessarily easy to, to do all the things. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, let's start with what you said. You know, you have a job and you're trying to save money. How do you, how do you even save money? Uh, I can explain it. It's very simple to explain. Um, it is a little bit hard to do. It's a bit like, how do I lose weight? We'll just eat less and exercise more. Um, but it's hard to actually do on a day-to-day basis. But um, one of the issues that people folk, uh, folks face in their first job as you're describing is how would I even go about saving money and I'll, I'll answer that one for you, which is I think generally we need to trick our minds. we can't leave it to a oh every every week I'm going to move you know this number of dollars into this other place. Automation is the key word there, and I think we need to program our bank, ask our bank every paycheck or every week or every month whenever you get paid take my money out automatically don't ask me do it automatically and move it into this account that I can't access for me that is the most practical and realistic way to to save money most people can't uh, you know some people can but most people can't take the money that they have and not spend it so you need to you need to kind of trick yourself I think of it as the uh, the Jason and the Argonauts approach to it. You're going to be tempted by the sirens on the side of the cliff and you say, tie me to the mast. You know, let me go through this temptation by tying me up. And essentially that's what automation does. It says just don't let me be tempted by the money in my account. Take it out while I don't even have control over it and put it into this hard to access account. That would just be one approach to saving money.
0: Well, I confess I did that. Um, Probably not, probably not enough. But yeah. early on, I recognized the money I didn't touch is the money I didn't spend. So mm-hmm. thank God for payroll deduction, um, yeah, for savings bonds, and um, for deferred compensation.
1: Yeah. Well, so this issue of automating, it works, you know, the federal government has figured out that automation is the only way they would be paid taxes on time because nobody's going to save enough on their own. I mean, a few people do, but most don't. So that's payroll deduction of taxes. The, the entire 401k... Uh, Defined contribution industry is built on this idea that we take the money out of your paycheck before you can see it And those seem to work tremendously. Well once you have it set up uh, And we just need to if you need to save money beyond that We need to set up other systems that are a lot like taking out your taxes or like a lot like your your uh, defined contribution plans
0: Okay, um That's where a way to save money, but there are a lot of reasons you got to spend the money, too um, You want to leave home very often Yep. And pay rent. Now, when I first got out of school, I was still living at home, and my parents mm-hmm. started charging me rent. And I, mm-hmm. I grumbled, but I handed in the money. Um, but that was another reason to get out because if I'm spending money on rent, I might as well spend it on my own place, not theirs.
1: Have fewer rules to be at home, right? They're gonna <laughs> they're gonna have some restrictions on the young person,
0: right? But how do you know how do you know what you can spend on rent? Any suggestions?
1: I do. One of the rules I have for, and I, I, part of this book came out of teaching a course at a place called Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas, which is where I live. And what I tell the college students is you don't know this yet, but your first job, probably your second job, whatever city you move to, you will not be paid enough money to actually live in that city because the price of rent is set for people who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s who have already uh, – appreciated raises and bonuses and they get paid to actually make a living when you're in your 30s and 40s and 50s. But 20-year-olds are considered too great a risk to actually pay a living wage. So you will be systematically underpaid. And you need to understand that when you move to a new city, that this is not a... I don't care who it is, you're not going to be paid an affordable amount at age 22. So how do you get around that? There's, There's no good happy way but one is you need to choose rent that seems to be far below what the lifestyle you deserve so that that means living in a place that is less chic or less safe uh, or less fixed up than you think than probably where you came from and making that choice is really is probably hard unless you have an instinct for cheap living but it may mean having a roommate beyond living in the dorm that you didn't really want but these choices um, are probably essential until you've gone through a few rounds of raises in your next, your second or third job where you could probably start to make an actual living. And I, I just fear that if you don't know that ahead of time, you could easily get into the trap of, well, I, you know, I'm paying my rent and I'm going out for drinks. And, and frankly, I, I just don't think, unless you have a trust fund, you're going to be able to make all of your bills at the end of the month. So yeah, rent is going to be the biggest one. So the biggest choice would be how do I live cheaper than I, frankly, than I deserve or than I want to live? Uh, it's going to be you're, you're probably sharing space. And you're probably, if, in your case, if you're fortunate enough to be able to hack living with one's parents at that age, uh, that's probably a good way to survive your first job. But th- that is really hard. Um, so, yeah, rent is going to be the, the, the number one determinant of whether you can make your bills with your first job out of college, I think. Uh, then you know, there's some other choices, but that's probably the most consequential one.
0: Is there though a percentage of your income you should look at for rent?
1: I don't have any formula that way. Um, I, I don't, and uh, it probably depends on where on this income scale you are. I don't have a good. I don't have a good uh, formula there. There are other ones that are classic. You know, no more than forty percent of your income if you're buying a house on a mortgage. But even that can be. I, those numbers always seem to be a little bit too high. Um, But I don't have one for rent, although maybe we could we could use that translation for, for how much does your mortgage cost.
0: Okay. Next, I think the decision I faced was getting a checking account so I could write checks because the world is less and less interested in cash. <laughs> uh,
1: how, how did that go with you? Did you have a checking account before you had a job, or did you have one as a kid well, uh, or I, a savings I, account?
0: I had one when I was in college. So when I had to buy textbooks and things like that, I could write a check, and the college would accept it. But um, that was, like, not totally under my control because my parents had to feed me the money for the checking account. Right. But um, once I got out, I had my own checking account and started writing checks, the electric bill, the phone bill, the gas bill, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It went okay. Yeah. Didn't bounce any checks, so that was success. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's good. I don't have any strong rules for shopping for a bank. Um most banks are similar. Obviously you would wanna figure out if given the balances that I'm gonna run and I think they're gonna be low, because like I said, the rule is you're probably not paid enough when you're in your lo- your young twenties. Uh you wanna try to get a no fee checking account and make sure that the balances that you run. But beyond the no fee, I think that's that would be the, the key beyond that most banks are quite similar in my opinion um and and then you the, the next issue is like well what about savings rates i frankly don't i don't find it that useful to think about what is the interest rate that i can get on my savings at least it hasn't been for the past mm, 17 years uh, or at least since the interest rates went down after 9-11 it not banks have not been an interesting place to earn good interest so i I don't find shopping for interest rates there relevant, but I do think you know shopping for a no fee check would be probably the key thing if you didn't already have a bank in the city that you were moving to.
0: No, what I what I did was I went to that bank across the street from my office.
1: Easy, mm-hmm. easy to get to, right? Yep, yep. Uh, yeah, between all the the payment mechanisms of Venmo and Square Cash and uh, Zelle, you can hardly use a uh, check anymore, or in debit cards, but you know it's become a less important uh, function that banks do for folks.
0: Okay. Then came the credit card, and that's <laughs> where I started really on the road to Hades in a Celeste sol- and a toboggan. In that, um, ooh, it's shopping, it's holidays. Let me go shopping and get people stuff that they really want to give them that they're really going to enjoy. And suddenly, it rose and it rose and it rose in terms of the balance. And the approved percentage rate was a killer.
1: Yeah. Well, credit cards, we could talk for hours about credit cards. It is uh, college is the age of acquisition of credit cards. And you and I, when we were in that age, it wasn't obvious that everybody had to have a credit card. Of course, everybody has a credit card now. You start out, 25% of college freshmen do, 75% of college seniors do. So they're, they're acquiring it during college years. Uh, it's as easy to acquire as the common cold. I mean, you just practically walk past some kiosk and they say, "Hey, would you like a free T-shirt?" "Yes, I would." Okay, here's your high-interest credit card to go with it. It's going to be 25%, but don't worry about that. Uh, and then you're off to the races. You can buy the keg, or you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it is the easiest thing in the world to start piling on high-interest debt. Uh, it is hard. Um, it's not. It's not complicated, but it is hard to then get rid of that. Um, the thing that I think people should know is how to calculate interest rates, which, again, is not taught in junior high. It's not taught in high school. It's not taught in college. And I find I had very bright college students in my courses at Trinity, and what the interest rate was and how to calculate it is a thing um, beyond most of them. These are bright kids. It's just never been taught. And you could almost get into a conspiracy theory about why we don't, as a society, teach interest rates, but it is certainly in the interest of the financial industry to not... Teach this stuff uh, too precisely, but uh, starting any, starting credit card rates. Assuming you get past the zero uh, teaser rate, is uh, you know somewhere in the ten to twelve percent range. But they can legally go up to twenty nine point nine nine percent. And the rule of having high interest credit card debt is there is no way to build wealth if you are also paying on high interest credit card debt. And so. the the good news from a personal finance standpoint, what do I need to know to run my life better, is if you have high-interest credit card debt, there's only one rule. Just pay off your high-interest credit card debt. The bad news is it's hard to do and it's expensive to do, but things get really, really simple if you carry a credit card balance, which is to say there's nothing more interesting to do from a personal finance perspective. There's no way to make yourself wealthier on a weekly and monthly basis than to cut down that debt until you get to zero. After that, you know, there's a lot more to do. But until then, you can keep things really simple. Just pay that off.
0: And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning is talking to us about financial rules for college senior graduates. Um, his name, Michael C. Taylor, his new book about that and a whole lot more. Michael, stay with me. I've got to run a few commercials, pay those debts. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, seven nineteen, and we're back here on WIP Sunday with Michael Taylor, his expertise, finance for the new college graduate. His new book, the financial rules for new college graduates. My name's Peter Solomon. Now I I got that high credit card balance going because I was very generous at Christmas. And I was basically only being able to make the minimum payment. And with the minimum payment, you never get ahead. Um, And I was very lucky to have a father who decided, okay, he's in trouble. I'll bail him out this one time, make it very clear this is the last time. And he did, in fact, bail me out.
1: Wow. That was very fortunate. Yes, I was. (laughs) Did you get any stern talking to at the time, or did you feel, "Wow, I don't want that to happen again," and I, I want to uh, go forth and do different do different things with my debt?
0: A little bit of both, actually. A little <laughs> bit of both, but that's another discussion. Um, sure. Hmm, all right. Then, as I said, I took what I could get to save through payroll deduction, and that was helpful. But mm-hmm. back, I was young then, and um, the question of an IRA came up. What do you think about IRAs?
1: Right. Well, it's, a, it's the first step. And the first thing that I think about is that a 20-something should not, uh, as as you even alluded to before, don't disregard retirement. It seems like a half a, half a century away, and it is, but that half a century comes, comes down the pike awful quick. The reason why every personal finance person tries to tell the 20-something to think about retirement, even when you're in your 20s, is that uh, the finance people know about something called compound interest. Compound interest is the math that says if you take tiny steps, like put away very small amounts of money, and then you're able to compound that for decades, there isn't any way you wouldn't end up pretty wealthy in the long run. So, An IRA is a retirement account that anybody can open as long as you have income. You don't even have to have a a fancy job that has a payroll deduction or defined contributions. Everybody is eligible if you have income to to open up an IRA. So even um, any any income that you're making outside of the home, and it's limited to $6,000 this year, but traditionally it was back in the day, 15 years ago, $2,000, and then $5,000, now it's $6,000. But if you were able to put away $6,000 at age, say, 25, and that's a lot of money I'm, I'm going to say out front, if you're 25, it's hard to come up with $6,000. But if you were able to come up with $6,000, that's the maximum in a given year, and you could re- earn a return like 6%, and then you wait 40 years till your retirement age at 65, it's worth $61,000, so 10 times the amount that you put in. If you were to get a better result, that $6,000 would be worth $271,000. That's one year's contribution for an IRA. You can do 10 years' worth of contributions. Uh, there isn't any way you wouldn't be a millionaire by the time you're a retirement age. That same math does not work as well for the majority of us folks who are 50 years old, and we say, wow, retirement is coming. Let me put away those amounts of money in my IRA the math just doesn't just doesn't work that way you you need the decades to compound not you know 5 years or 6 years or 10 years if you have 40 years to compound which a 20 year old does a 20 something does that's how the math works so yeah every everybody in their 20s should know that uh, an IRA is a pretty good vehicle for putting away not huge amounts of money and and frankly it, it, starting with $1000 you should do it but you can do it up to $6000 in any given year and if you were able to do it wealth is guaranteed in your retirement for sure um, like I said not true for somebody who's in their 50s or 60s it's it's a lot uh, more difficult to reach that kind of comfortable retirement but it is uh, my phrase is that you know small steps taken early beat heroic steps taken late when it comes to a vehicle like an IRA and you don't need a fancy job a fancy job to start an IRA I tell college students that if you have a job that offers a 401k or a similar thing a 403b if you're in the not-for-profit world you've got yourself a good pretty fancy job and that's a good thing many jobs don't have these um, but if you don't have one of those you you should look to the ira as your next best vehicle for starting retirement account savings
0: so of the two you recommend 401ks
1: yeah if you have a A good job that offers a 401k or in the not-for-profit or government world the 403b they are incredible vehicles for automating your retirement contributions and if you can navigate the menu of investment choices and that's a whole other issue i hope we'll get to talk about that and that can be complicated but assuming you make some good choices with the investment menu that your company or employer provides and you do that automatic payroll reduction there's probably no better way than, than building up long-term retirement wealth. Part of the magic is the automation, and part of the magic is time. You have This is by definition retirement money, so by definition we generally have decades to go or at least many years. And then part of the magic is these are all tax-incentivized or tax-advantaged accounts. The, the federal government has set up a system to say we want people to be – saving money for retirement. So we'll give you a tax break in a variety of ways with these accounts. So between all those factors, the automation, uh, the time, and the tax break, there's almost no better vehicle for building wealth.
0: Okay. Now something else that um, employers very often offer is disability insurance, short-term disability, long-term disability, and life insurance. What do you think about
1: those? Insurance is a difficult subject, and I'll I'll give my philosophical approach. There are some insurance that you, well, I'll start with the one question I think you're supposed to ask whenever you have an insurance product. And the one question is, what is the financial risk that I'm trying to transfer from myself or my household onto a big company that can endure the financial risk? And if you can satisfy that question, then probably you need insurance. My next approach, and I'll I'll give an example of that, but my next approach to insurance is, you don't wanna buy too much, insurance is inherently expensive, and so try to minimize the amount of insurance that you buy, just from a wealth building standpoint. And then, given those two principles the question, what's the risk transfer? And second, don't buy too much insurance. Now we get into the weeds of which insurance do I need, how much should I buy? Um, I'll start with the, the things that you probably have to buy. Uh, generally legally we have to buy car insurance it's not a it's not a choice and generally if you own a house you have to buy homeowner's insurance because your bank wants you to buy it if you if you own your house screen clear you don't uh then the third thing you you after obamacare and incentives there you generally have to buy health insurance i, I don't think there's any funniest person who would say ah wing it a little bit when it comes to health insurance so those are the have to's uh you asked a, a couple of other types of insurance, like long-term disability, then there's uh, other types of life insurance. And I think there is a a place where reasonable people can disagree, and I would tend to be on the don't buy too much insurance camp, but that is a place where I can understand people have different risk appetites, people have different health needs, Um, and then certainly we have different dependence situations.
0: The reason I I ask is I didn't buy life insurance Mm -hmm. until I got married. And, okay. had, and had a wife and children to think about. Yeah, made... that,
1: that's, yeah, that seems to me a completely reasonable approach. Uh, so for the new college graduates, if, if that's who's you know, reading my book, I think there's lots of scenarios where life insurance doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's an expensive uh, financial product. And if you don't have any dependents, uh, you don't need life insurance at all. Uh, I don't think you need life insurance for your cat. You definitely mm-hmm. don't need it for your roommate. You don't need it for your siblings or your parents. I don't think we don't, we don't owe an obligation that way. But once you're married, and if you are the breadwinner in particular, and then if you have a child, uh, those t- folks who are depending on you and your income, if you were to um, become unable to work or if you were to die, then, yeah, there is a financial risk there that, that possibly they can't bear.
0: I mean, so,
1: uh, uh, on the other hand, if your spouse is independently wealthy and doesn't really need your income or money, then I would never buy insurance. It's, you're not insuring anything. There's no there's no financial risk transfer, so you could just say, I don't need insurance. My, my wife is independently wealthy or something like that. You know, mm. um, We should all be so fortunate.
0: Exactly, but that's another discussion.
1: Uh, <laughs> can I ask you, how did you go about procuring insurance once you thought it was time to do it, and how did you find that experience if you remember it?
0: I had no idea where to begin. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I had a coworker who sold life insurance on the side, mm-hmm. and it was a very reputable company. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like fly-by-night insurance. It was mm-hmm. a company that had been around forever. Mm-hmm. And I, we just got me medically evaluated, and they gave me a price. And while it may have seemed high, I had some health complications in my history that we had to mm-hmm. worry about. So I started paying 150 a month.
1: hmm
0: and that's how I bought it.
1: Do, do you remember the conversation and in, in whether it, the, there was a discussion about whether you needed whole life or insurance you'd pay for the rest of your life versus term life, something would be five or 10 or 20 year commitment to the insurance company? No, do you I remember just, that?
0: I just went for whole life because I knew then um, it was worth money and I could potentially take some money out. Yeah. And it would be there forever and I didn't have to worry about it. It's the renewal date. Yeah. What do I do now?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Is that an actual question you're
0: talking about? No, that's that's a decision I made.
1: I see you right, yeah, of course, Yep. So reasonable people disagree on this one, and um, there's an entire universe of um, insurance folks who might disagree on my next statement, but I, I often urge people to consider term insurance for a couple of reasons, term just being I've only committed to paying five years or 10 years or 20 years on this. And the first reason I say that is our dependent needs change over time, and we might need to ratchet up or ratchet down, actually, uh, what kind of financial risk transfer we need in the coming 5 or 10 or 20 years. Um, If you know that you need to leave a a pot of money for a spouse or a dependent child, then um, that's going to push you closer to whole life insurance. But... Sometimes we don't need know what we're going to need, and sometimes it is possible to, if you can build up enough of a nest egg or build up wealth independently of an insurance product, you can self-insure through investments. And so I, I tend to urge people to try to do that, especially if you start young. That is a possibility that you could do. Uh, and, and then, therefore, you could, do, you could solve the problem of self-insuring cheaper by having term life insurance and building up a nest egg. This is a it gets a bit complicated there, but I think it's um, it is at least plausible and at least something to, to think about. In that sense I'm I, I tend to fall on the side of less insurance rather than more.
0: Well, again it pops into my head I remember what my father used to say about insurance. Insurance is buying life insurance is you're betting you're gonna die. And <laughs> and yeah, we're gonna die, but we don't wanna talk about that or think about it too much. So he That's had very right. he had very minimal life insurance and use some mm-hmm. money to invest in other ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on. Investments. They're the ones that I find the most scary in mm-hmm. that, um, again, going back to the wisdom of my father, you, can't, you shouldn't invest any money that you can't afford to lose.
1: Mm-hmm. What do you think? Mm-hmm. It's not a bad starting point. Um, a corollary of "shouldn't invest money that you can't lose" is "don't invest in things you can't understand." That's another good one. And in both cases, uh, they those would be urging caution, and that's not a bad place to start. Um, the opposite approach, which would we might call "sure," just walk into the casino and plunk some money down and hope that it works out. And if it does, great. I guess the, the gods were you know the <laughs> the odds and the gods were in your favor. Is is probably a much worse approach than your father's approach. Um, I would qualify it a little bit um, in the sense that he said, don't invest money that you can't lose. I would say um, if you have a time horizon longer than in my, my rule of my book is five years, then you, it is plausible and reasonable to invest in what I call risky assets, and risky assets uh, includes everything from stocks to real estate to even more exotic things. But let's just start, stay with the things that we mostly know stocks and real estate. If you have a kind of a, a five year or more time horizon, it is a reasonable thing to do to invest in those things, even knowing that there is some risk of loss. But I would say, done properly, there's generally not a risk of 100% loss. And by properly, I mean. Uh, in the stock sense, you're not buying a single stock. Any single stock could be 100% lost. But a basket of stocks, a group, is generally not going to zero, although I would say you could, you're could, you certainly in any stock. There are no 100% safe stocks. You could certainly lose some money. But if you have a group and you have a greater than five-year horizon, you're not talking about going to zero. You're talking about some volatility, some, some up and down uh, price action, but in the general sense, it is, I think it is a reasonable thing to do. So it, I would say start with your father's advice. Don't invest in money you can't lose. But I would then say if you have a long-time horizon and if you invest in more than a few things, you're not going to lose at all. Mm-hmm. And it becomes much more likely that, in fact, you will probably make money in general.
0: Even with the stock market we have today, you turn on the news and you hear about the Dow Jones and the Standard & Poor's and all that stuff. And half the time you're going, yay. And the other half the time you're going, oh, my God, we're broke. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Even in just what you said, I have so many things to say, and it's such an interesting topic. So the first thing is, as a Wall Street guy, it's a, it's an old cliche that we live on, the, we're either in fear or greed mode. One is I'm going to make so much money, and the next is I'm going to lose so much money. I actually think we could translate those from an original you know, early humans on the uh, African savanna facing a fight-or-flight approach, you know, oh, I'm about to kill that animal and eat it, or oh, that animal's going to kill me and eat me. And, and then we translate that to, to the stock market and we go, I'm either fearful or I'm greedy. And, and those are our two modes, and there's, there's not a lot of peace in between. Um, so... I'm in 100% agreement, if you were going to be involved in the stock market, you're going to experience that roller coaster feeling, and that's not a good feeling. On the other hand, um, and I I address this in Chapter 2 of my book, uh, I think financial media does a deep disservice, generally speaking, and I'm saying this as somebody who's in financial media. I write a newspaper column, and, and I have a finance blog, so I'm in financial media. But financial media does a very bad service to most people, because it encourages this fear and greed approach, and in a very short-term way, we could be—we're we're generally whipsawed. If you—if you pay attention to financial media, you will be whipsawed five ways to Sunday. And the fear and greed could happen—you know—more than one feeling in, in the same day. Never mind the dozens of times we would feel it in any given week if you are to be involved in the stock market. So I'm hundred percent on board with the. This is a a roller coaster ride that you are signing up for. Oftentimes if you were to both invest and follow financial media. And that's a problem. And it is a real, I think it is a wealth limiting or a problem to the, the, what financial media does to our minds, our fight or flight, our fear and greed minds. I think it's a real problem. However, even having said all that now, <laughs> I think you, there are ways to invest in the in the stock market that are both long-term, so over five years and ideally more like 10 years, or 20 years, or 30 years, have a long-term approach, somehow filter out financial media and just say, I'm not listening, <laughs> you of got to put on blinders and, and cover your ears, and commit to money that you don't need for 10 years, 20 years, 30, 30 years, and in almost every case, if you have a long-term approach, and you're able to filter financial media, you will make a lot of money. Um, that's a long winded way to say, yes, I think people should be invested in the stock market.
0: <laughs> and, you listen, <laughs> and you listen to 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon more in just a bit. And we're back. My guest, Michael Taylor, his new book, the financial rules for new college graduates. My name's Peter Solomon. All right, Michael, there's a line from the play, the matchmaker and obviously in hello dolly in which the matchmaker was made, um, Money's like manure; it's no good unless it's spread around. What do you think <laughs> of that?
1: Do you mean that in a philanthropic sense?
0: In any sense. I mean, my money, your money, the philosophic sense, what's that, whatever sense. I mean, because that seems to me that line encourages spending.
1: Yeah, from a from a finance guy's perspective, no, I don't think we should be uh, looking to spread it around in a in a spending sense. Um, of course, there's a there's a point at which people who have enough aren't spending it, and they're not able to get it up, and that can be a psychological block. You know, the, I think a, the generation that grew up in the Great Depression, or if you had a similar experience like that, it becomes hard to let go, to sort of ungrip your fingers on money. But that problem is the is the exception, not the rule. Most of us are not saving enough. Half of American households don't have any appreciable net worth. You know, 40% of folks have no retirement savings. So um, as a general rule, uh, most people need to be saving more, not spreading it around more.
0: All right.
1: I, I, I guess I would say if you were to interpret that statement of spread it around more from a philanthropic standpoint, like if you have plenty of money for yourself, and you really have more money than um, than you need for your lifetime, then, and I have a chapter called on philanthropy, I think, I'll say the next statement, and I'll see what you think about this, but I don't think you can be wealthy, and I don't think you can feel wealthy until you actually give some of your money away, and you could have the largest bank account in the world, but if you don't have money to give to some cause you believe in or some mission that you feel you have the ability to affect, then you will never feel wealthy enough. There's always somebody who has more money than you, unless you're Jeff Bezos, in which case you're the top. But other than that, you're you're everybody has somebody who's wealthier than you. You can always feel inferior to them. But if you have enough money to give away to a cause, to something you believe in philanthropically, to spread money around that way, I think that's an important step towards being, and also feeling wealthy.
0: Okay. Now I'm going to go back into my own history for a little bit. Great. I retired from a job after a whole lot of years in that job. And I was able to retire to receive a pension of 80% of my final salary. Wow. Exactly. And I'm with that money. I purchased my health insurance and it's expensive. Um, about $1,000 a month, but that $1,000 a month was hit home to me when I had to have back surgery, and I saw the bill for $38,000. Wow. Exactly. Um, If I didn't have that health insurance, I'd be living in a refrigerator box. Yeah. And then there's always Social Security. Can we count on Social Security?
1: There's a lot there. So the first is, uh, thank goodness for health insurance that you have it, and that you could afford it, and um, we know anecdotally that almost nobody can afford to get ill because just simply walking into an emergency room and breathing—it's—it's a thousand dollars just to be breathing in an emergency room, and it gets worse from there. So I'm glad you had it. Not enough people have it, um, and it's uh, a health, uh, health problem is can be catastrophic. So uh, there there's no reason. Uh, well, we. Frankly, you know, that's obviously a larger discussion on politics, but, yes, everybody needs health insurance for sure from a financial standpoint. It's too catastrophic to do anything medically without it. Um, And second, congratulations on having a pension. That puts you in a very rare category. Pensions are not typical anymore. Uh, They still exist often for teachers and public employees, but it is a a huge lifesaver for many, many people. So that's great, too. Uh, To your final question of... um, Social Security, it is there are actuarial numbers that put us at twenty thirty four, which is, happens to be around the time that I will be <laughs> Social Security, where there are insufficient funds in a mathematical sense to pay out everybody at one hundred percent of what's owed. That doesn't mean that they stop paying or that benefits are reduced. What really happens from an actuarial or you know the, the math geniuses that are figuring out the formula is you change the rules sometime between now and 2034 to cover that. Some of those rules are going to be you don't get social security until you're a little bit older, which frankly I think is perfectly reasonable. We live you know a decade and a half to two decades longer than we did when social security was first designed. Or you get a reduced amount or in the worst-case scenario the government sort of inflates Inflate <laughs> with the value of the dollar, so you get the nominal amount that you were supposed to get, but doesn't buy as much, and that's a that's an upsetting situation for retirees. But Social Security does not suddenly go away in 2034. But we have a we have a known math problem that we have to solve between now and 2034 to ensure to shore up the program. But it is a it is too popular a program to go away. I, I don't see a scenario under which it goes away. It just it will have to be made somewhat less generous sometime around the time I'm retiring, which is somewhat upsetting,
0: <laughs> admittedly. Well, again, I was lucky with my pension because when I signed into the program, it was a time and age thing. And that same time and age, if I retired, if I was a new employee, mm-hmm. it would have gone from 55 when I could take the pension. To mm-hmm. Today, you have to be 80 to take the pension. Wow.
1: Yes. Yeah, so the rule of pension programs, since our security is the biggest one that we all qualify for, but generally even private or, or public pensions for, you know, teachers and that kind of thing is, if you are already in the program, you generally get the deal that you were offered, but if you're a newcomer into the program, you get a much worse deal than the old folks. That's how you fix a pension from a policy standpoint, is the newcomers bear the brunt of the <laughs> the older folks' mistake in math, the, the older math mistakes get solved by being less generous to the new folks. That's just generally the rule, unfortunately.
0: Which, if they're going to do that, it seems to me at the very least, they should offer a course like yours to help them figure out what they're going to do with that less pension.
1: Absolutely. This is my life's mission is financial literacy and how do we teach people starting in junior high the basics of behavioral, uh, attitudinal, and then mathematical rules for what are you supposed to do? And this is not Complicated to understand. Really, junior high is the is a point where people have enough uh, wherewithal to grasp this stuff, and then reiterate in high school, and then reiterate in college. Uh, and it's essential. It's, it's you know, like I said, my life mission, which I'm pursuing through my book and through my writing and through teaching and speaking and that kind of thing. But yeah, it is essential.
0: But how do you do all that when we live in a society that encourages acquisition? He encourages buy it now. He encourages get the biggest, the brightest, biggest, the brightest, the bestest that you can find.
1: Yeah, most people don't have. Uh, you know, if you're real, really lucky, you have parents who help you filter this stuff. If you're not as lucky, then you have the problem of financial media, which I, I gave you a little bit of a rant there. But I really feel that the folks who cover the financial industry are doing a, a disservice of uh, teaching fear and greed rather than sort of a calm generational decade to decade approach. And then obviously uh, the consumer culture that teaches us that you're not a millionaire unless you actually have the bling hanging around your neck or if you have it in the car that signals to the world how wealthy you are. And there are counter messaging going on, but it's it's much quieter and it's harder to find if you don't have a guide to the counter messaging and the counter messaging would be classic, financial books like The Millionaire Next Door, in which uh, famously from 20 years ago, uh, a professor of, of business went and he, he interviewed millionaires like, and, and they generally, they were driving outdated cars and they had these big bank accounts, but they didn't show it. And that kind of, we don't know that from, uh, from media culture and from consumer culture, but it is a reality when you spend some time with wealthy folks, you go, oh, there's a lot of wealthy folks who are not showing it in their car or their house or their bling, but they're just quietly accumulating assets, and you go, oh, so that exists. But you really wouldn't know it from, uh, you know, watching YouTube or, or watching TV. It's hard to find that messaging, if, especially if you're a kid, if you're a young person. You kind of realize it over time. Huh, there's some really uh, modest, down-low, wealthy folks. Um, but it's, it's, like I said, yeah, that messaging is harder to come across.
0: Got a website, Michael Taylor?
1: I do. I've been writing since 2012 on bankers-anonymous.com. The name comes from the idea of we have to get uh, sober and realistic about finance. So uh, a banker who, uh, you know, went into Bankers Anonymous.
0: And your book certainly can be ordered through Amazon and probably yep. Barnes Noble as well.
1: Yeah, Target.com and Barnes & Noble and Amazon. It's on, there's a Kindle version. Um, Certainly, ask for it at your neighborhood bookseller if you don't want to support giant conglomerates. But yeah, all the, all the big ones online, you can order it there. The Financial Rules for New College Graduates is
0: and easily findable. And while it's for new college, would you buy this book for a high school graduate who's not looking at college?
1: I would. My 13-year-old, is, she's a bright kid and a good reader, but she understands it completely. I've been giving talks to groups of high school students, you know, 109th graders last week, and You know, it's not too early to start, and they can absolutely read this. It's it's not complicated writing.
0: And I'd like to say thank you to Michael Taylor, his new book, The Financial Rules for New College Graduates. Consider it as a gift for that graduate of either high school or college coming your way. Thank you, Michael Taylor. Peter, thank you so much. My pleasure. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. If you can, thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and to add time and Solomon, my dear wife and associate producer, couldn't do the show without either one of you. Nothing left to say but find love, save a dollar, see you soon.